Uh, So James chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, hear the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Have you noticed that it's much easier to see errors in others than it is to see them in ourselves? Well, we can do that as we look back throughout church history, and we can see that Christians have a tendency to do something. They have a tendency to conform themselves to the values of the world around them. And it's easy for us to look back over history and see how those Christians did this. We see that when Christianity became the accepted and then the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church wanted to get in on the action of having courtly majesty and pomp and earthly power, and so the church began to imitate that, and the church became identified with that sort of approach. Uh, It was also in the Holy Roman Empire, which the Pope helped to create on Christmas Day in 800 by by anointing Charlemagne, the, the new emperor, and they wanted a piece of that action in Central Europe and the power that that offered. We see how when missionaries went out from Western Europe, they tended to identify the gospel with Western civilization, and so they were promoting not only the gospel of Christ, but also trying to Westernize and, in their minds, civilize the rest of the world. We see more sinister identifications in places like Nazi Germany, where uh, churches went along and uh, with this program of white supremacy and anti-Semitism. We also see in the academy, we see how these uh, movements in, in universities, higher criticism in Germany and then England and then coming across the United States was all the rage. And so the, the theologians jumped on board and uh, the effect of that was to lessen the confidence that Christians have in Holy Scripture. Or we can see how uh, some have tried to meld Marxist ideology with with Christian theology, particularly in Latin America and some in Africa, and they've come up with liberation theology and uh, trying to say that this is really what 
what the gospel is all about. Or, uh, this is a homegrown one here in the United States, the prosperity gospel, which takes the American dream of of, uh, ever-increasing prosperity and tries to wed that to the gospel and say that that's what it's all about. Or or, uh, some jumping on the bandwagon of sexual and identity, uh, sexual and gender identity, and saying, yes, this is, this is what the church should be doing as well. And it's, it's easy for us to look at Jesus and decide that He was just like us, and He's on our side, and He wants everybody to be like us. That's a tendency we see throughout church history. Now, not all Christians have been like this, obviously. There have always been those who have resisted. There have always been those who have stood up and said, no, we need to stick to what Jesus taught us and not try to force Him into our mold, but try to conform our lives to what He taught. And as we look back in these, these were often martyrs, sometimes even killed by the the dominant church because they wouldn't go along with the the program of of melding Christianity with the the values. Um, What we find is that James was writing even in these first decades of the Christian church. And he was saying, be careful about this, folks. Be careful about adopting the values of those around you. That was the error that Israel constantly fell into, and that's the error that we see in church history. And that was what James was warning them about, and it seems like some of them had already done that, had already gone in the direction of of adapting their Christianity so that it was more amenable to the the values around them. And so he wrote this whole letter to these early Christians who, like us, were tempted to conform to these standards around them, and like we do around us, urging them, urging us to live up to the faith that we profess. Now, we saw last week, I'm not going to repeat the introduction, but we saw last week that James assumes... Christian faith. He's assuming faith in Jesus. He's assuming faith and understanding of the gospel. And he's saying, I'm assuming that you have that faith, and now I'm calling you to live up to that faith. And he introduced two of his favorite themes uh, last week, and he's now going to introduce another of those themes. Two of the themes were trials and wisdom. Trials and wisdom. And now we get to the third of his favorite themes, which is Poverty and riches. Poverty and riches. And that's how he begins in verse 9. Let the lowly brother, let the humble brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We will find throughout James that he delights in turning things apparently on their head. But what he's actually doing is he's, he's reversing uh, the worldly values and showing what Christian values are, and they are the opposite. And in this, he's following the tradition of wisdom literature, and he's following the tradition of Jesus, because when we look at Jesus' preaching, he was often turning things apparently on its head, but he was actually writing them uh, and freeing us from the, the false values of the world. But this verse says, let the lowly brother. Now, it doesn't say poverty here. Uh, the words used is the lowly or the humble brother, but then it's contrasted with the rich. So it looks like that, that part of that lowliness was, was uh, financial lack, financial poverty. But there could be other types of lowliness as well. A lack of power, a lack of status in the society, a lack of access to, to, to the means of society. And he says the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation. Now, we're reading through James and we can, we can 
understand that he was writing to a church that was lacking. He was writing to a church in which there were many Christians in that church, just like there are many Christians today who were lacking in, in financial means. Now, if we would, if we would take the, uh, one of the examples I mentioned, the prosperity gospel, and if they were writing to these people, they would say, you need to believe more, or you need to give more. And the reason you don't have is because you're not believing enough and you're not giving enough. But that's not what James says. James says something quite shocking. He says, let the humble brother, let the lowly brother boast, boast in his high position. Now, this idea of boasting, usually boasting in the New Testament is a bad thing. But the reason it's a bad thing is because the object of the boast is wrong. All of us boast in something or another. All of us glory in something or another. All of us take delight in something or another. And the problem is not the taking delight in or the boasting or the the glorying in. It's the object thereof. And if the object thereof is not worthy of our boast or worthy of our taking delight or glorying in, that's where the problem is. And he's saying here, the lowly brother should glory in, take delight in his exaltation. His exaltation. Now, he doesn't explain what that exaltation is, although later he will. He gets back to this theme again, and we'll see something about what that exaltation is now. What are the the benefits to the lowly brother now? But when we look at what, what Jesus says about the poor, particularly in Luke, particularly in Luke, if you read through Luke, as I I hope you just did, as we're doing the New Testament this year, you find that Luke has a different emphasis than others of the Gospels. Of course, the same message, but but it's always uh, he's always flipping things over. He's always turning them over. And look at the Beatitudes, the the blessings that Jesus pronounced in Luke chapter six, and you'll see how he's flipping things from what we would normally expect. Lifted up his eyes on the disciples, and he said, "Blessed are you who are poor." For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is in keeping with what we saw last week. What did James say at the beginning? He said, count it all, what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And now he gets more specific. When you meet humiliation in your life, whether that be financial or social or whatever it might be, when you're, when you're humbled in your life, count that trial as an opportunity for joy. And what he teaches is, because in the long term, it's beneficial. In the long term, it's beneficial. And Jesus is, is here saying that we can enjoy things now or we can enjoy things later. He says, if you're poor now, if you're insulted now, if you're lowly now, rejoice because there's something much better for you and much more lasting and much more weighty being stored up for you in the future. And um, this is... This is in keeping, of course, with what Jesus himself did. Jesus now is highly exalted. Would you agree with that? The Bible teaches that he is at the right hand of the Father, and that one day every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. Let me ask you, how did he get there? 
How did he get there? I'm talking about the incarnate Son of God. What was the path that he took to get to the highest place? Well, Paul tells us what that path looks like. Philippians chapter 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did the incarnate Son of God get to glory? What was the path he took? It was through humiliation. It was through lowliness. And then he says to us, come, follow me. Don't expect that your path to glory is going to be through glory. You see, that's how we would like it to be, right? Give me glory now and give me glory in the future. Just glory all the time. But that's not the path of the Son of Man. And that's not the path that he has for his people either. Uh, The path to glory is the path of humiliation. He says, so therefore... So therefore, lowly brothers and sisters experiencing humiliation in some manner in your life, rejoice in that. Uh, Count it all joy. Boast in that. Because in the long term, you are in an advantageous situation. Now, the next thing he says is to the rich. In verse 10, and here once again, and the rich let him boast in his humiliation. Now, the reason for the humiliation of the rich, it says, is because they're like the flowers of the grass. And their pursuits are like the flowers of the grass. It says, like the flower of the grass, verse 10, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Have there been any rich men or women who have not done this? I mean, the the ones that are still alive haven't done this yet. But are there any rich men, the magnates of the earth, who have not passed away in the midst of their pursuits? No. They've all done it, or they will do it pretty soon. And he's saying, so this is not a stable ground for boasting. This is not a stable ground for glorying in. This is not a stable ground to take delight in because no matter where you are, no matter how rich you might be, no matter what your age might be, sooner, I could say sooner or later, but actually it's sooner, you will pass away in the midst of that. So don't put your your emphasis there. Don't put your stock there. Don't put your glory there, your delight there, because it's going to pass away. Now, there's a difficulty here, not a difficulty, but a question, and the scholars are divided, and I understand why. Is he talking about the rich non-Christian, or is he talking about the rich Christian? Because he says in verse one or verse nine, let the lowly brother, so he's talking about lowly Christians, but then he says, and the rich in his humiliation. And there are two different ways that, that this could be read, and I have to say I'm not quite sure which. The rich non Christian, then it would be sarcastic. It would be saying, Okay, rich non Christian, 
Uh, go ahead and boast. Go ahead and boast in, in, your, in your humiliation because you're going to pass away. It would be something like that parable that Jesus taught about that rich man who had his, his productive fields and so he wanted to big, build a barn and then a bigger barn and a bigger barn. And he had his big barns. He said, now I'm ready. Retirement's here. I can take it easy. And that night his life is required of him. So it could be sarcastic and saying you're going to pass away. If you look back at, um, look back at uh, Luke chapter 6, and we continue in the Beatitudes, he says to the, uh, those who have what they want now, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So he's saying, you can have it now, or you can have it later. And if you have it now, well, that's all you have, and it's going to pass away. That's the message to the the non-Christian who trusts in his riches. But what about the rich Christian? I tend to think that's the proper interpretation here, by the way, that he's addressing both. He's not being sarcastic, it doesn't seem like, but he's addressing these these different groups in the Christian church, that there are lowly brothers and sisters in the Christian church, and there are those who are prosperous in the Christian church. And he's saying to those who are prosperous in the Christian church that they should boast not in their prosperity, not in their exaltation, but they should learn to boast in their humiliation. Well, what's their humiliation? Well, once again, their humiliation is that that which props up their life now, it's going to go away. So don't boast in that. And also, the fact that they're enjoying all this now may mean that they're not going to enjoy as much through all eternity. Now, how that all works out, I don't understand that. But Jesus is saying, if you lack now, blessed are you because yours is the kingdom. You will be filled. You will be lifted up. And so it may be that the wealthy Christians are in a disadvantageous position now. So what should they do? That they should glory not in what the world glories in, but glory in the fact that uh, they are in Christ. That's really their boast. That's the boast of the poor. That's the boast of the rich. Um, so, what is the instruction for the believing wealthy? Well, there is some very clear instruction, not here, but other places. For example, First uh, Timothy, Paul says, he talks about this, about the boast of the wealthy, and we're not to boast. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And here he's talking about wealthy, prosperous Christians. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, That's the glorying in the riches, the glorying in the the wealth. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Sounds just like James, doesn't it? But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So it's not impossible, it's not impossible that the wealthy can store up good things later, but it's difficult. Because, uh, it's difficult for them to be haughty, difficult, or, or easy for them to be haughty, easy for them to trust. But if they use their wealth properly, then they can have a piece of that kingdom. They can be full later. They can have true treasures. 
if they will refuse to indulge themselves now, refuse to trust in their wealth, but rather to invest that wealth in the kingdom so that they'll have something not just now for a little while, but something forever. A good example of this, um, Patrick Morley, a Floridian around uh, Orlando, he was uh, in building, he was in construction, and he went through the booms and busts of construction in Florida, but, but he rode a boom, he rode a wave, and he began to prosper. And he began to have much more money than he needed to have. And he already had a lifestyle that was quite comfortable. And uh, But now he thought, well, now I can do much more with this. And so this house that we're in now, well, it's not in keeping with my income. And I need a house that's in keeping with my income because what's income for anyway? It's to show people that you have it. And it's to enjoy the benefits of it. And he started talking about, we got to move, family. we got to move because now we can. And then he started realizing that his family wasn't on board. They were saying, we like our house. We like our neighborhood. Uh, we like where we are. My best friend lives two doors down. And so he started thinking, why am I so enthusiastic about moving when my family doesn't want to move? And so he said, well, let's redecorate instead. So they redecorated their house. They took some of that that they were, were given uh, in the prosperity and they redecorated it and they stayed put. And then he says, little by little, they realized that what they needed to do was this. As they prospered more and more, and he did, as he prospered more and more, he said, we are going to increase our standard of giving, not our standard of living. And that became a principle for them. There's at least one man and his family who understood both the temptations and also the opportunities. So what did he do? He said, this is, the, this is the ceiling for our standard of living. We're not going to adopt a standard of living beyond this. And so if we prosper beyond this, and what we need to put aside for retirement and for the future, we will give it away. We will give it away to the kingdom of God. What's he want? He wants real treasures later, not just a bigger house now. He's investing in real wealth for the future. Now, by the way... Um, we compare ourselves to our own environment, don't we? We live in South Florida, and this is our standard. So we look around, and we, we see the, the wealth and the prosperity around us, and we say, well, that's talking about them. That's not talking about me. Um, but it's also helpful to see how we stack up against the world, by world standards. Do you remember Occupy Wall Street, that movement that was said, you know, we're representing the 99% and we're against the 1%, the 1% that controls everything. Well, we're the 99. We're the voice of the 99. Um, let me tell you who the 1% are, if we use world standards. If you have an income of $32,400, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. You are that 1% by world standards. So this is helpful to keep in mind. Because uh, we compare ourselves to the, the, the wealthy around us, but by world standards, many of the people in the world, in, in this church, are in that 1%. Or, if you have uh, saved up in your assets, you have $770,000 in accumulated wealth, in net worth, you're also in the 1% of the wealthiest in the world. You say, well, okay, I don't have that. Well, if you have $80,000, you're in the top 10%. So even so, even so, amounts that might not seem like a huge amount by American or South Florida standards are huge amounts by world standards. Well, that's the first 
That's the first message of James. And this is the third theme, the third of his great themes in which he calls us not to adopt the world standards, but to adopt the standards of Jesus. Now, in the next verses, verses um, going back to our text, in verses uh, 12 to 15, he goes back and he, he touches a theme that he's already touched, and that's, that's trials. He's using this word once again. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I'm going to get out of my depth very quickly, musically speaking. But James is something like, and the musicians can correct me afterwards, something like a, a jazz or a mariachi musician. Because what he does is he takes a theme. I don't even know if that's what it's called. Tell me later. I should have asked before, right? Yeah. But he takes a theme and he, he keeps coming back to it. And he keeps... Well, the musicians would be improvising. He's not improvising, but he, he adds something to it. He takes it and he, he takes it in another direction and he develops it. And that's what he does. Now we'll see this throughout this letter. He's picking up one of the themes that he played earlier and now he's going to play it again and come back to it and develop it a bit more. So we've already seen we should have joy in trials. And then he comes back to verse 12 and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So he's developing it in a little bit different way here. In verse 2 he said, what should we have in the midst of trials? He said, we should have joy. And he said, if we have that joy then those trials that test our faith will produce steadfastness. So it was the the production, it was the product of trials. Now he takes steadfastness and he says it's not only the product of trials, but it's on us to practice it, to remain steadfast. It's a call as well as a product. So it's something that God does and it's also a call to us, the one who remains steadfast in trials. And then he takes the horizon the horizon, and he extends it to eternity. What will we receive if we're steadfast under trial? He says, we will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. And here's an image of eternal life, being crowned with life, true life, eternal life. Now, once again, as we saw last week, James likes to play with words a little bit, and he has catchphrases that he uses, and those advance his, his argument. The word translated trial, and also translated temptation, is the same word. So let's, let's look at this. Verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under what? Trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is... Tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's, once again, debate among the interpreters about what's going on here, but it does look like James is, is transitioning from one meaning of the word to the other meaning of the word. And I think that takes place not where it takes place in this translation, but it takes place one word earlier. Um, uh, Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. I think the best way to understand it is to translate it this way. Let no one say when he is tried, I am being tempted by God. 
Let no one say when he was tried, I am being tempted by God. In other words, what James is saying is, God presents trials to us, and He does try us. And we see this throughout Scripture. God tried Abraham, it says. He tries us to test our faith and to produce steadfastness, which then produces its other benefits. But that trial should not be conceived of as a temptation. But it can be a temptation to us. When we fall into trials, we ourselves can be tempted to respond negatively. But what he's saying is, don't blame God for that. If God brings a trial into your life, He is not bringing it into your life as a temptation. And if you are tempted in the midst of this trial, which we often are, don't blame God for that temptation. Don't say, God, you're the one who's tempting me. No, God is the one who is trying you. And if you're tempted in the midst of that uh, that trial, James says, that didn't come from God. That came from you. And here he uses this language that we saw in Proverbs chapter 1 of the, the lure, of the, the bait that is drawing you aside. He says, God is not tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Then he says how we get tempted. Later on, he's going to introduce another factor of temptation, but here he, he puts it all on us. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, if I'm in a trial, and I am tempted in this trial, whose fault is that? Mine. He's saying, don't blame God, it comes from you. So look to the heart, look to your desires, and your desires, they give birth to sin, and sin, when it gives birth, it gives birth to death. So don't blame God for that. And then he says, God is the one, and this is the transition to the last section, he says, God is the one who gives good gifts. He doesn't give temptation. He gives good gifts. Do not be deceived. Verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We saw that word perfect before, now we're seeing it again. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying God gives good gifts. He gives good gifts unvariably. He gives good gifts unchangeably. And he compares God to the lights that He created. And let me ask you, does the light of the sun produce shadows? Yeah, produces shadows, right? He moves across the sky, and what else happens? Shadows, they get longer, they get shorter. When you have a full moon, does that produce shadows? Yes. Uh, If we could see the brightness of the stars without the light pollution around us, would that produce shadows? Yes. The lights that God created, they shift. They produce shadows. God does not shift. God does not change. He does not produce shadows. He gives good and perfect gifts unchangeably, unfailingly. And the other, the, the, the main gift that he gives is the new birth. The new birth. Uh, in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is not super clear here because the translation is fine, but if you look at verse 15, it says, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And then you look at verse 18, it says that by his own will he brought us forth. That is a word that means to give birth. So it says sin, uh, when it gives birth, it gives birth to death. 
And God, when He gives birth, that's the image here, He gives birth to us that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creature. So He's using a couple of images here. He's using a birth image, and He's saying that that's the main gift. That's the big gift that God gives. He gives the new birth. Well, we've heard about that if we read the Gospels, right? We've heard about Jesus talking to a man named Nicodemus. And what does He say? Nicodemus? You must be, what? Born again in order to experience the kingdom of God. Uh, and we, we find that, that Paul uses that same sort of imagery, but actually he, he talks about new creation more than, more than new birth, and John focuses on new birth. But this is, this is the biggest gift that God gives. But oftentimes we, we misunderstand this idea of the new birth. Let me ask you something. When you were born of your mother's, what did you do? What did you do? Nothing. Did you help your moms? No? Did you help at all? And the moms can testify. Did your children help you to give birth? No. Um, I know somebody who every Labor Day sends a thank you card to her mom. Yeah, flowers. Flowers, right. Why? Because... The mom did everything, right? And, and the child is recognizing, I'm here, not of my own will, not of my own effort, not because of anything I did, but because my mom gave birth to me, brought me forth. And that's what it's saying here. So this image of being born again, of being born anew, is emphasizing that we did nothing. Now sometimes in, in, we don't understand this, and you'll find books that are called like, How to Be Born Again. Well, that's like giving a, a, a unborn child you know, instructions on how to be born. It's, it's not necessary because the mom does everything. And there's nothing we can do to be born again. It is all on God. God is the one. And when we realize that, when we realize that He's the one that causes us to be born again without any effort, without any contribution on our part, we say, wow, that's a good gift. That's, the, that's a, the crown of the good gifts that God gives. But I want you to see something else. Because you might think, well then, then what, about, what about us? I mean, is, is there no place, that, that, no response that we have? If you look at verse 18, it says, Of His own will, He caused us to be born. And then what's it say? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, as we've noticed... James assumes what other New Testament writers state. He assumes the Gospel. And here we have some very clear evidence of that. He says, okay, God is the one who by His own will sovereignly causes people to be born again. But there is an instrument here that He uses to draw us to Himself. And what is that? The Word of Truth. Paul uses this expression, the word of truth, to refer to the gospel message. And what's the gospel message? That which James is assuming and which is preached throughout the New Testament. The gospel message is that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, uh, Jesus, who became a man, His Son became a man, gave His life for us, uh, for our sins, paying the penalty thereof, rose from the dead on the third day, so that anyone who believes that will receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. That's what James is assuming here. And he's saying 
that this was an instrument that God used to draw us to Himself. Yes, new life is a gift from Him. We don't contribute. But He draws us to Himself through this message and we are called upon to believe this message if we would have the life, if we would have the forgiveness, if we would have what is offered in this message. Now, what's James doing? James is saying, okay, you have that. You, you've been born again. And if that's the, your case, then this message is for you. If you've responded to the gospel message in faith, then this message is for you. If you haven't, then it's time to respond to this gospel message. It's still held out to you. And there's always time, if you're still alive, to respond to this message in faith. But what's he saying to you if you have received this message? Just what we said at the beginning. He's saying, if you're a Christian, then live like a Christian. That's what the whole letter's about. If you're a Christian, live like a Christian. And I've told you before, as I'm out trying to talk with people about the gospel, I don't find many object to the gospel. I find most people object to Christians. And, and they're saying, show me a Christian. Show me a Christian who lives like a Christian. And, and then, then I'll be more interested in believing what you're telling me. So what's he saying here? Three areas. He's saying humiliation and exaltation. Respond to those as Christians. He's talking about trials and temptations. Respond to those as Christians. And he's saying the good gifts that God gives to us unvariably and unchangeably. Respond to those as Christians. Now, there's no guarantee that even if we live that way, that people will respond in faith to the Gospel. But, even if they don't, here's what we want to happen. After they meet us, after they see our lives, they'll say, well, I don't know that I believe that, but I am certain that I have met a Christian. Let's pray. Our God, we admit that we are easily squeezed into the the mold of the world around us, especially when it comes to things like like power, like money, like fame, like influence. And we also are squeezed into the world's mold when it comes to things like trials and temptations, and we can easily respond to those badly. Father, we do pray that You would enable us to respond in faith, in joy, in steadfastness, in humility, in thanksgiving, so that we can demonstrate that You have really caused us to be born again, and so that we can really demonstrate that the faith that we profess is a true faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, O God, for the witness of our individual lives. We pray for the witness of our church. We pray for the witness of the churches around us that we, O God, would be Christians who live what we profess. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.